Hello, and welcome to Power Pros Podcast, episode 182. I'm your host, the Hoff, Chris Hoffman, and once again, I am flying solo because Pete's beard fell into the deep fat fryer again, or something like that. Nonetheless, I am back to talk about what's going on in the world of Nintendo, including some game impressions, a little bit of news, and then this week's big topic, which is all about dream-based games. First, though, we're going to kick things off with some game impressions, starting with one I've been quite looking forward to, and that is The Legend of Zelda Link's Awakening for Switch. This game is pretty much everything I could want out of a remake. It takes a beloved, fantastic classic, gives it a thorough visual overhaul, keeps 95% of the gameplay intact, and adds just enough new twists to keep veterans like me on their toes. At its core, this is classic, top-down 2D Zelda at its finest. You explore the overworld, you visit dungeons, you acquire new items that let you get to new areas, you discover secrets, and then repeat. In a way, it's insane that this is the same series as The Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild, because they really look and play almost nothing alike, yet they still have that same great sense of adventure at their core. That aside, one thing I love about both this game and the original Link's Awakening is its sense of imagination and goofiness. It is no secret that Link's Awakening is set in a dream world called Coland Island rather than in Hyrule, and that seems to have given the developers the freedom and the license to do whatever they want. You know, a village full of talking animals? Okay. Put in some Goombas and Piranha Plants and side-scrolling action? Sure. Throw in cameos from Kirby and Wart and the dude from The Frog for Whom the Bell Tolls that no one in America has heard of? Why not? Have an NPC start shouting goofy things when you dig with a shovel or hit a cuckoo with your sword? Yep, that is all in there too. And the writing is just as goofy as the situations. I love the guy who warns you he's going to get lost, and sure enough, he gets lost later on. He's desperate for a pineapple for some reason. Just all kinds of silly stuff occurs, and this game is just like, well, you don't really know what happened, but you have a new item, it seems. So it really just feels like developers had a ton of fun making this game, and it really comes through in how enjoyable the gameplay itself is. So yes, it's got goofy humor, as well as the usual stuff you'd expect from Zelda, a great assortment of items and tools, a fun overworld to explore, and eight great dungeons. Well, maybe seven great dungeons and one really annoying dungeon, but close enough. And of course, the game looks better than ever with this unique sort of claymation art style. I can't say I totally love it, but I don't mind it either, and it is very pretty. The one weird thing is that there's a completely different anime style that's used for the opening and ending of the game, and man, I would have killed to see the game in that style. I can't quite imagine how it would look as an entire game, but, you know, I'd kind of like to see Nintendo try. And as it is, it's a very stark, jarring contrast between the gameplay and those intro and ending scenes. The sounds in the game are fantastic, too. They are very much exaggerated, like Link's crazy over-the-top scream when he falls, or the rubbery sound that you get when you smack an Octorok with your sword. Sound effects don't really stand out in games too often. This is one of those few times where it just really shines through and shows they put in the extra effort to make the game sound great when it comes to effects. Needless to say, the music is also amazing. I mean, the music was always really good in this game, but now it is better than ever now that it's on Switch instead of a 20-year-old 8-bit system. 
As I mentioned, though, there are many changes, most of them very subtle. The story, the maps, the items, all those are completely intact. But veterans will notice a lot of changes. The fishing minigame has a lot more depth, no pun intended. The trendy claw game has a lot more to it and gives you reasons to play it throughout the adventure. There are more secret seashells and heart pieces to find. And many of the enemies and bosses have different patterns and require different tactics to defeat. A lot of the regular enemies can't be beaten just by slashing alone. And the third boss almost felt like a totally different encounter. There are also lots of convenience features, like bottles for catching fairies, the ability to use your hookshot diagonally, more warp points for easier overworld exploration, and the ability to see where you found pieces of heart and seashells, which is a lifesaver once you've hit the end of the game and you're like, okay, I only need two more, where could they be hiding? Well, now you know the ones you've already found out if you're like consulting a list or something. Perhaps the biggest new feature in the game, though, is Dompe the Gravekeeper and the Chamber Dungeons. Basically, you assemble your own dungeon from different rooms you acquire. However, almost all of these rooms are places you've already played through and been to, so it kind of feels like you're treading through very familiar ground that you have just been through. I haven't done a ton of this yet, but so far I haven't found it very compelling. I feel like it'll be more rewarding if I continue to play through these Chamber Dungeons, but right now they're kind of boring me. That aside, I absolutely love this game. I sat down and played through the main story in a single weekend, and I haven't done that with a video game in ages. It's a remake that very much improves upon the original, and it reminds me of why I fell in love with The Legend of Zelda to begin with. Overall, I cannot recommend this game highly enough. Of course, there was also a brand new Link's Awakening Amiibo. Amiibo! As far as functionality goes, you're supposed to use it to add another feature to the Chamber Dungeons, which I haven't actually tried yet, and you can also use it to save your Chamber Dungeons to the Amiibo and then share them with friends. But my main takeaway with this Amiibo is that it is shiny. It is so very, very shiny. The pose is kind of stiff and not very inspired. There aren't a whole lot of details to this iteration of Link, and he's kind of expressionless, but my goodness, it has this glossy shine to it that I just love, and is indeed a good representation of Link as far as how he appears in this game. I will give this amiibo a recommendation based on its shininess and glossiness alone. Then, in addition to that, there were also three brand new Super Smash Bros. Amiibo recently released. Squirtle, Ivysaur, and Snake. Squirtle and Ivysaur are pretty much what you'd expect, which is to say great representations of the characters. Being Pokemon, they aren't especially complex or detailed and have pretty simple color schemes, but they are very cool, especially Ivysaur. The vines and leaves and flower on his back add a very nice dynamic element to the figurine. Snake, meanwhile, is my favorite of this group. Yes, he's a favorite character of mine, so that certainly helps, but the level of detail on this amiibo is kind of insane. It's the character from Smash Brothers, so you know that means a lot of straps and pouches and buckles on his outfit, and they did not skimp on any of that stuff. You know, wrinkles on the clothing, the stitching, it is all there. It is so detailed that I feel like it's an HD amiibo or something. I am very glad to finally have Snake in my collection, along with Sword on Ivysaur as well. Beyond that, I have also been playing Damon X Machina on Switch. That's the futuristic sci-fi mech battle action game. 
I played through the first several missions of the game, specifically in the prologue demo. It certainly does seem better than the old demo that came out many months ago. Maybe that's because I knew what to expect, or maybe that's because it's more focused and streamlined now. But for whatever reason, I like it a lot better than I did before. And going out into the field with your mech and blowing up enemies is definitely fun. However, I'm still not totally sold on the concept. I really feel like they're holding back on the cool stuff. You know, you start the game with a shield in one hand and this little pea shooter in the other, basically the mech equivalent of a musket rifle, and that's all you have to fight with at first. You know, even if they just gave you a bunch of cool stuff, you know, lasers and missiles and chain guns and whatnot in the first mission, and then like took them away after that, at least it would really pull you into the game and it would tell you, yes, stick around, you're going to get some really cool stuff if you keep playing. Even so, this time at least, I was able to get a sword fairly early on, and that definitely adds to the cool, visceral feel I was hoping to get out of this game. And that's one reason I like the game better now than I did in the previous demo. But still, you know, I can tell they're holding back. Where are the other cool weapons? Where are these cool giant bosses that I know I'm supposed to be fighting? That stuff isn't in those first few levels, and I feel like the slow burn approach is not best for this type of game. Another questionable aspect is that while the mechs look super cool, almost all of the human pilots look like they were created using some randomized custom character editor generator or something. They're just not very appealing. On the other hand, it does feature an ice cream parlor that offers you stat boosts for eating ice cream, so definitely I say kudos for that. Anyway, despite its pacing, I am enjoying Demon X Machina so far. I would love to see what comes next. The demo progress does carry over into the main game, but as I predicted months ago, the biggest problem is that this title is being released at a very busy time of year, and I just don't know if I'll be able to find the time to fit this into my schedule amid stuff like Zelda, and Astral Chain, and Dragon Quest XI, and Untitled Goose Game, and Ori and the Blind Forest, and everything else that's coming out around this time. So we shall see if I play more from here. However, I have found time to play yet one more obscure title on Switch, and that is AI The Somnium Files from Spike Chunsoft. I'm actually not sure if it's pronounced AI or I, or maybe it's pronounced Al, I don't know. But that's not important. What's important is that this is the next game from the mind of Kotaro Uchikoshi, the director of 999, Virtue's Last Reward, and Zero Time Dilemma. I love those games. They were basically these brilliant puzzle adventures on DS and 3DS, so I made sure to not let this one slip past me, even during this busy time of year. I haven't played a ton yet, but my early impression is that this is something unique and different and crazy, which is exactly what I was hoping for. To be honest, I had no idea what the game was in terms of gameplay before I bought it and popped it into my system. It turns out it's sort of a point-and-click adventure mystery. You play as Detective Kaname Date, a member of a special organization called Abyss, who has an onboard AI built into his fake left eye, which is, for some reason, personified as a cyclopean teddy bear named Aiba? Yeah, it's very weird. Date, like 
you know, many Japanese game protagonists. He has very fancy, sexy hair, and he is like a grizzled vet at the ripe old age of about 24 years old, as far as I can tell. Anyway, there doesn't seem to be any combat or action in the game so far, but you point and click to investigate crime scenes, you talk to witnesses, and you search for clues, and thanks to your robo-eye, you can even use functions like x-ray vision and a zoom feature. However, in addition to exploring crime scenes in the real world, you also get to explore the world of dreams, which is known as Somnium, thus the game's title. And in this dream world, Aiba is suddenly an exotic young anime woman who also has fancy sexy hair, and you control her as you try to interact with this world and break through mental locks to dig through people's subconscious and discover the truth that's hidden within the deepest layers of their psyche. You could say it's kind of like a much more complex and interactive version of breaking the psyche locks in the Ace Attorney games. Anyway, these dream worlds aren't bound by usual logic, but have their own set of rules, and figuring these out are the keys to success. Unfortunately, I haven't really gone much further than the first dream sequence. Supposedly later on, the dream worlds will have these strict six-minute time limits, but so far the game is very interesting and quite living up to my expectations of something weird, cool, and crazy. I don't really know what to expect going forward, but I am very, very intrigued and cannot wait to play more. The last title I've been playing recently is not on Switch, but on mobile, and that is Mario Kart Tour. And yes, it certainly has a lot of the Mario Kart trappings. Lots of characters, lots of items to throw at your opponents, lots of tracks. It also looks great. It pretty much looks just as pretty as any Mario Kart game to ever come out on console. On top of that, it does have exclusive tracks based on real locations. Like right now, there is a New York course, so that's pretty cool. And to go along with this new location are new characters like Pauline, who's never been in a Mario Kart game before, and this spiffy, suave, suited Mario. However, when it comes to the gameplay, you do indeed accelerate automatically, and you really only have to focus on steering and using items, and you do that by moving your finger around on the touchscreen. So far, the vertical screen has not been an issue for me, but I haven't found the gameplay, this touch-and-drag-based steering, to be very satisfying. For me, I'm finding it kind of awkward and difficult to use. I would much rather be playing on regular controls. Also, it seems like there is a huge emphasis on microtransactions. The game is called Mario Kart, but so far, I can't even play as Mario. I can only play as Toad and Peach. Getting the characters seems to be gotcha-based, and some provide advantages on certain tracks, so it's a blend of blind luck and pay-to-win that I am not very fond of so far. Ultimately, it seems pretty decent for a free game, but I think the minute they start expecting me to pay out money, I will absolutely go back to just playing Mario Kart 8 Deluxe on Switch. We'll see how it goes. That's all I've got for game impressions, but I do have time for a little bit of news. The only news item I wanted to bring up this week is that Dragon Quest 1 through 3 are all going to be on the Switch in the eShop by the time you hear this. These games have sort of been lost to time as far as Nintendo systems go over the last several years. The last time we saw them was back on Game Boy Color. There haven't been any virtual console releases or anything like that in North America, but now they are finally back on Switch. However, these aren't the original games. They're a strange amalgam of 16-bit and modern HD visuals, but they are still 2D. Regardless, you know, whatever you think of that new facelift, they are finally back, which is great. 
On the other hand, I think it's absolutely insane that they are coming out on the same day as Dragon Quest XI. I mean, if you're already a Dragon Quest fan, you're like, okay, this is awesome, then, you know, you'll probably buy them up right away. But, you know, if you're a new fan, and that's probably a lot of the potential audience out there, that is a lot of Dragon Quest arriving all at once. You know, I think they'd want to bring Dragon Quest XI out, hook new fans, and then say like, oh, hey, here's all these other great Dragon Quest games you can pick up for a relatively cheap price. But no, they're all landing on the same day. I mean, to this day, I have never finished a single Dragon Quest game, and putting four out all at the same time is definitely a good way to try to convince me I am not going to finish any of these either. Still, I'm glad they're out there. If they do a physical release, probably all together, I would absolutely get the lot of them. Or you can just grab them right now off the eShop. They are available for the strange prices of $5, $6.50, and $12.50 respectively. That's all there is for news this week, so I'm going to move along to a little bit of listener mail. The first letter this week comes from listener Andrew, who writes, Love the show. I was wondering if you guys would ever consider having a recurring or semi-recurring segment discussing games you've been playing that aren't all that new. Something like a dive into the backlog, where you could give updated thoughts on games from previous weeks if you've continued to play them. Of course, it could be any game from your backlog. If not that, maybe it could work into a big topic somehow. I always like hearing your thoughts on my favorite Nintendo games. Thanks. Well, you are welcome, Andrew, and thank you very much for writing. That is a very interesting thought. I would love to do it, although, to be honest, there are many weeks where I'm so busy playing the new stuff, I don't have any time to go back and get caught up on the old stuff or play anything in the backlog. It can be a real issue these days with so much amazing stuff constantly coming out on Switch. However, at the very least, I have been wanting to do something like this, very possibly a big topic where we do check out some of these older classics that we somehow missed originally. It is a great idea. We will see what we can do. And then we have a letter from listener Brian Booth, who asks, Okay, guys, how does the Genesis Mini measure up? Not just to other Mini systems, although I'm curious, but to other Sega collections that have been released over the years. Inquiring minds want to know. I'm glad you asked this, Brian, and in fact, to answer that question, our next episode will be a special bonus episode that's all about the Genesis Mini and the Genesis's 30th anniversary, so please stay tuned. Thanks again, guys, for writing in. And that does it for letters this week, so let's take an intermission. And uh, nope, nope, Pete is not interrupting me this week, believe it or not. No Pete around. So we will take an intermission, and then when we come back, we will discuss this week's big topic, which is Dream Games.
All right, we are back, and we are ready to discuss this week's big topic, or possibly small topic, as it turns out. But at any rate, in honor of the recent releases of The Legend of Zelda Link's Awakening and AI, The Somnium Files, both of which I covered earlier this episode, the big topic this week is dream games. And I don't mean the games of our dreams, I mean games that actually feature dreaming or dreams as an important theme. Sometimes it's major, sometimes it's minor, but it often leads to something unique or creative or very cool. Personally, I generally tend to like it when you know that dreams are incorporated into the game. It tends to open up the possibilities and lead to some very interesting gameplay. I'm a lot less of a fan when the game just sort of springs it on you at the end. Hey, guess what? Everything you did was just a dream. It's all meaningless from a story perspective. But even so, there are some games like that that are very good nonetheless. Anyway, here are the Power Pro's official top five best dream-based games. Warning, there may be spoilers ahead. Coming in at number five, we have Knight's Journey of Dreams for Wii. With the word dreams being in the title, it's not too surprising that this game makes the list. After all, it is set in the dream world of Nightopia, and you play as a human that merges with knights, this whimsical, jester-like creature of dreams, and you try to put an end to the nightmares, which in this game's case seems to be caused by the main character's deep anxieties about their parents. It's a little weird. Anyway, the game really captures that dreamlike feel well. You are flying, or you're floating, or you're going down a river rapids, and you're you know, visiting gorgeously colorful worlds and landscapes that could only exist in the imagination, as well as encountering unworldly boss creatures in surreal settings that are likewise bursting with creativity. The flying is especially where Knights Delivers is the core of the game, and you know, that's almost a universal thing. Pretty much everybody has had, at least once in their life, a dream about flying, you know? So from that aspect, as far as delivering a dreamlike quality to the game and really emphasizing the theme of dreams versus nightmares, Nights is pretty much unmatched. And the soundtrack is equally dreamy. It is one of the best soundtracks on Wii. Admittedly, as far as gameplay goes, the game wasn't everything I'd hoped it'd be. I loved the original Knights Into Dreams on Sega Saturn, and as a follow-up to that game, I had very high hopes. But this game ended up having a lot of filler content and questionable design choices. Almost everything that's not just a typical flying stage is kind of mediocre at best, and the characters can be kind of annoying. So I feel like this is really a big missed opportunity in some ways, but still, it does the dream aspect very well, and I really do hope that Sega tries again, or at least brings a modern, upgraded Sega Ages version of the original Knights to Switch, because that would be fantastic. Next up at number four, we've got Mario and Luigi Dream Team for Nintendo 3DS. This is another game that makes no bones about being set in a world of dreams. The whole thing is very sleep-themed. Mario and Luigi are visiting a place called Pillow Island, which is run by a Dr. Snoozemore, who is all about sleep research. And the whole thing opens with Luigi having a nightmare about falling through the air and waking up just before he hits the ground, which is indeed a very real dream-based thing. 
Naturally, the game has the usual Mario Luigi turn-based RPG goodness, where you're pouncing on enemies and dodging with timing-based button presses, but early on, you find this sort of magic pillow and magic bed, and Luigi immediately dozes off, and it opens a portal to the dream world. And wouldn't you know it, Princess Peach gets sucked in by some evil force, and Mario has to go get her back. And of course, the dream world is all surreal and wonky, with windows floating in the air and bricks are just moving around. But even better than that, though, is the fact that Mario is joined in the dream world by Dreamy Luigi, who is Luigi's dream version of himself. And he has lots of extra abilities as Dreamy Luigi. He powers up Mario in battle, and he can interact with the environment using these Luiginary works, which you use to progress through the dream world. You also have control of the Luiginoids both in and out of battle, so you can use them to help explore, and you can literally make your enemies suffer death by a hundred Luigis, which, again, is amazing. And then, on top of that, there are even special fights where you battle as a giant Dream Luigi and play with the 3DS turned sideways. You add all of that to the typical Mario and Luigi formula and humor, and you get a game that is pretty darn fantastic. After that, at number three, we have Klonoa for Wii. Now, the original Klonoa, which first hit the PlayStation and was later remade for Wii, isn't explicitly set in a dream world, but when you begin the game, it says something about it being a vivid dream that the narrator can recall, just like it was yesterday. And the setting is indeed very dreamlike, and again, whimsical and sort of surreal. You play as Klonoa, this kind of weird cat, rabbit creature who can use his giant ears to flutter jump just like Yoshi and you are armed with this ring that lets you grab onto enemies and objects and you can use them to launch yourself high into the air with a huge jump or hurl them as projectiles and it makes for some fantastic gameplay and very satisfying platforming moments. It is very possibly the best 2.5D platforming action I have ever played. Naturally, you're exploring a variety of creative environments such as villages and jungles and caves and enemy bases. You know, you're seeing waterfalls are flowing up instead of down, and you battle big, colorful bosses by throwing their projectiles back at them. So it is super fun as a platformer, but then at the end, what happens, and again, big spoiler here, you find out that you, that Konoa, the main character, doesn't really exist in this world, and that he was just an imaginary creature summoned from the world of dreams, and he sort of gets sucked into an abyss and disappears at the end. I mean, technically, I guess he's a dream within a dream or something, but it's pretty much the most heartbreaking ending ever. It's also just a really fun game with amazing play mechanics, and the memorable ending with the dream tie is just icing on the cake. Some of the Konoa sequels have been more explicit about the dream setting, like the Game Boy Advance puzzle platformers were called Konoa Empire of Dreams and Konoa 2 Dream Champ Tournament, for example. But the first Konoa, I would say, or more specifically its remake, is still the best, in my opinion. Unfortunately, the series has failed to ever really gain any traction and has pretty much faded into obscurity at this point. But there is a rumor that Bandai Namco is going to revive the series on Switch due to a recent copyright placed on the name Klonoa Encore, and if that happened, that would be absolutely awesome. Next up, we have Disney's Magical Quest, starring Mickey Mouse for the Super NES. Now, here we have another great platformer, this one from the 16-bit era and made by Capcom. 
In this one, you play as Mickey Mouse, obviously, and Pluto is run off, and you know, before you know it, you are on a great grand platforming adventure. You're climbing giant beanstalks and navigating forests by swimming through tree sap and jumping across floating leaves. Then you make your way through a blazing inferno and icy slippery mountains where you ride on a huge ice cube. There are some great bosses too, like a giant spider and the most nefarious boss in all of gaming, the great evil Emperor Pete, who obviously erases your Final Fantasy VI save data regardless of whether you win or lose. No, that's a big lie, of course. Uh, but the real star of the game is its mechanics. Mickey has a grab ability, which he can use to throw blocks and stunt enemies and use them as weapons. And he can also gain the power to switch costumes. He can turn into a magician, a firefighter, or a mountaineer, each with their own powers, like firing magic blasts or spraying water. The Mountaineer, though, is especially cool since it gives you this Bionic Commando-style grapple that lets you swing and climb all over the place and makes the game really, really fun. Of course, at the end of the adventure, Mickey wakes up in bed and the whole thing was just a dream, and while I think that is pretty lame from a story perspective, the game is fantastic, and so for that reason alone, it is on this list. In fact, I would go so far as to say it's not only one of the best games featuring dreams, but one of the best licensed games ever made. Finally, coming in at number one, we have Super Mario Bros. 2 for the NES. Are you shocked and surprised? No, probably not, as long as you knew that this game was all set in a dream. In a way, you know, it is kind of lame because it does just throw it in at the end, although there is this little hint at the beginning, I suppose, but it really does make sense in the context of the Mario universe. As most people know, this really wasn't originally a Mario game, so it kind of makes sense to have it all be set in Mario's imagination, and that's why instead of being a traditional Mario game about rescuing Princess Peach and traveling through the Mushroom Kingdom and jumping on enemies, it is set in the world of Subcon, which as I am saying this, I am now realizing is probably short for subconscious, and I never realized that until now, 30 years later, and I feel kind of dumb that it took me this long to realize that. But anyway, that explains why you're throwing vegetables and riding magic carpets and creating doors with potions and battling some crazy vegetable-hating frog dude named Wart. So, yes, this game is just also really, really fun. The jumping and throwing play mechanics are really solid, and the inclusion of not only Mario, but Luigi, Princess Toadstool, and Toad as distinct playable characters really expanded the Mario lore. The graphics and music are outstanding for their time as well, but the main reason I can forgive and even love the whole dream twist at the end is that you get that really nifty ending of Mario lying in bed, snoring away with his sleeping cap on, which was just really darn cool back in the days of the NES, and uh, even cool now. Sure, it was all just a dream, but it is a great game any way you slice it. So that is our official top five dream-based games, but I do want to give an honorable mention and shout-out to one more, and that is Tetris. And no, Tetris is not actually about dreams in any way, but because I have experienced this myself and so many other people have as well, I have to give it a nod, and by that I mean a nod to the fact that you actually often dream about Tetris, you know? When you're in a Tetris groove, man, it's all you can think about, even when you're asleep. So, fun fact, I actually once tried to ask a poll question in Nintendo Power about if readers ever dreamed about video games, and the choices were supposed to be yes, no, sometimes, or only about Tetris. 
and the Nintendo legal department forced me to change that last one because Nintendo doesn't own the rights to Tetris. There's nothing legally wrong with asking it, but Nintendo Legal was just being a bunch of uh, idiots. I think they wanted me to change it to Dr. Mario or something, but I've never dreamed about Dr. Mario, but I have dreamed about Tetris. So in the end, I changed it to, I've only dreamed about certain falling block puzzle games, but I forget if I actually ever ran that in the magazine. Anyway, there's some behind-the-scenes Nintendo Power info for you, straight from the pros. Now with that said, I do believe this episode's big topic or maybe it's just a small topic, is coming to a close. And that means it is time to wrap up this episode of the podcast. However, before we go, there is time for one more thing, and that is a dramatic reading. This time it is from the eShop description of the recently released Switch game, Ball Attraction. Excite Adventure Game Ball Attraction is an easy, simple, but challenge game. Just control the ball through a variety of obstacles. Do not touch other colors. It would make balls suction more powerful when you attracted more balls. No music, but game sound that makes you relax and idle. Not only can use control stick to enjoy all levels, but also can control the ball by touching screen at the same time. Yeah, really? I think that dramatic reading pretty much speaks for itself. And if I make any comments, this podcast might run the risk of suddenly being rated M for Mature. So I think I'll just leave it at that. So yeah, that does it for this week. As always, you can find us at powerpros.podbean.com. You can follow us at powerprospod on both Facebook and Twitter. And you can follow me, The Hoff, on Twitter at Chris the Hoff. You can also email us at powerprospod at gmail.com. And if you like the podcast, it would be great if you told your friends about us. Thanks for listening, everybody. For myself and my good friend, Knight. Let's check it out. We will see you next time.